Let us continue. On this point, which I already mentioned, the third objection, which is circularity. What do we mean by circularity? Circular reasoning. Is this not a logical fallacy? If someone engages in circular reasoning, he presupposes his, his conclusion. Is this not a logical fallacy? What would you answer to that? Well, we presuppose the word of God is true, something which we have not proven yet, yet we, we presuppose it, and at the end of our argument is the word of God is true. That's a classical circle, isn't it? Is this not a fallacy? Now, this is a very popular objection which is placed at our doorstep. And we have to find and give a reasonable answer to it. And this is exactly what we do. I'm not denying it. So the charge hits home in a sense. But is it, is, is it a true charge? Does it wound us deadly? Do we have to give in to this charge and say, oh, yes, you are right, I have not proven my case, I presuppose the truth of the word of God without having really proven it. And must, I will always end up in my conclusion on the same spot where I start out, meaning the word of God is true. Is this not something which I have to prove first before I can presuppose it? Is this not something which comes at the very end of my argument and not at the very beginning? How do we answer that objection? It, it is a very severe objection which we have to answer. Obviously, you know that I reject that. Otherwise, I would not be a Christian. If it would be a true objection, I would give up my Christian faith in a second. Since I don't give it up, <laughs> I believe it's not a true objection. Well, how, we, how do we answer it? I will give some clear answers in a second. But before I do, I give you one hint how we can counter that argument of circularity. The argument can be, um, the, the force of the argument can be mitigated by turning the tables. How do you think? Don't you think in circles as well? And if that someone who opposes me and accuses me of thinking, thinking and reasoning in circles is honest with himself, he has to admit that he thinks in circles just as well as I do. His circle is different, but it's still a circle. So that charge which he puts at my doorstep is a charge which he tells himself if he's honest. Okay. Let's go into the nitty-gritty of that whole objection. Once again, lots more can be said about it than I'm able to say here, but I will try to say the most important aspects of it. What 
presupposed that presupposed allegiance rules our thinking as it rules all other aspects of life. And since Christian presuppositions underlie all of the Christian reasoning, then our argument for the truth of Christianity itself must be, in a certain sense, circular. It must be circular, since we do presuppose the truth of the word of God. So whatever we do is indeed a circle in a certain sense. This is very important because there are differences between circular reasoning. And we have to keep that in mind. There are vicious circles and, and fallacious circles, absolutely. And we should not give in to that kind of reasoning. But this is not the kind of reasoning we engage in. We should try to understand what that certain sense is. It is not that we are reduced to saying Christianity is true because it's true. You're not reduced to saying that. Or any other such nonsense. Rather, the argument is circular in that it appeals to criteria of truth and rationality which are themselves Christian in that they accord with Christian presuppositions. But if that is true, then we are presenting an argument that assumes from the outset that Christianity is true. It assumes, in other words, the conclusion it attempts to prove. Now, normally, circular argument is considered a fallacy. This particular type of circularity, however, I believe, is not a fallacy. This is very important to stress this. Because if it would be, Christianity is not true. I'm on a false ship. Floating in the wrong direction, if it is true. But I maintain and affirm it is not true. Pastor Bob, you said. I was so. just going to ask if you could uh, begin again with the sentence, we are not reduced to saying that Christianity is true because it's true. Yes. Would you mind just repeating what you said there again, please? Okay, surely. This is nonsense. You're not saying that. If we say that, then the charges is correct and we have to give in. We lost. Rather, the argument is circular in that it appeals to criteria of truth and rationality. This is the, the important aspect. Which are themselves Christian in that they accord with Christian presuppositions. There are other presuppositions in regards to truth and rationality which we reject. But since we affirm the Christian type of truth in rationality, we have to presuppose the word of God because this is part of the Christian criteria of truth and rationality. If we reject the presupposition of the word, it would not be Christian truth, it would not be Christian rationality. It would be something else. 
I continue here in manuscript. But if that is true, when we are presenting an argument that assumes from the outside that Christianity is true, it assumes, in other words, the conclusion it attempts to prove. Now, let's go further into the circularity of it all. Why can I say it's not fallacious, even though circular arguments are considered to be fallacious? This is, this is uh, the important aspect which we need to consider here. Once again, now normal circular argument is considered a fallacy. This particular type of circularity, however, I believe is not a fallacy, but a necessity of human thought, not just Christian thought. This is what I stated earlier, of human thought. In other words, all humans, regardless of what they believe, argue in circle on a certain level. And that certain level needs to be further defined. Consider the following. And have, I have three different examples which I will present to you now to show you um, something of the internal um, aspects of a fallacious circularity and a non-fallacious circularity. We will not be able to move beyond circular reasoning. But we need to explain the differences between a fallacious circular thinking and a non-fallacious circular thinking. A. All valid arguments are circular in a similar way. In the syllogism, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. The conclusion is implicit already in the premise. Circular reasoning. Similarly, for inductive arguments. Now, this was a deductive argument, a syllogism. Let's look at the inductive argument. The situation is similar, not identical, but similar. Even though in them, the conclusion goes beyond the premises. For even in an inductive argument, the premises must necessarily be compatible with the truth of the conclusion. If a premise tells you something completely different from what your conclusion tells you, well, your conclusion is wrong. <laughs> you have to adjust your conclusion to what your premise, your, your premise tells you. Not least in the criteria of rationality and truth to which they are responsible. Okay, this is number A. Number B, arguments for religions and philosophical systems are arguments for world views. The key word is here, world view. A world view is a general, general account of all reality and understanding of the most basic features of the universe. All arguments for the truth of world views, whether religious, philosophical, political, scientific, or whatever, must presuppose standards of rationality consistent with those world views. All such arguments, therefore, are circular in a way similar to ours. Okay, they also, like a Marxist, also presupposes a certain kind of rationality. 
You cannot think without that presupposition. You cannot be a Marxist without presupposing a kind of system, be it economic, be it political, which Karl Marx devised. Now it's different from the presupposition we hold as Christians, but they are presuppositions nevertheless. C. That is especially the case because worldviews typically include criteria of truth, rightness, rationality, etc. But all arguments for such criteria must be from the outset consistent with those criteria. Indeed, such arguments must appeal to and therefore presuppose by the criteria in question. For to what else can we appeal? This kind of circularity is not limited to Christianity. It is obvious in other worldviews as well. A philosophical rationalist, for instance, one who believes that human reason is the supreme arbiter of truth, must ultimately prove this, his point by appealing to human reason. Similarly, for an empiricist, a subjectivist, a Muslim, a Buddhist, or whoever, why then should anyone be surprised that a Christian would seek to prove his worldview by appealing to the Bible? his ultimate criterion of truth. Everyone else doesn't. They just are nonchalant and don't tell you, but they still do it. So turn the tables. If you accuse me of that, well, how do you do it? How do you justify your own worldview? If you're a rationalist, well, you presuppose the ability to reason correctly. You appeal to your own reason as the ultimate criterion. You presuppose that. Otherwise, you could not claim to be a rationalist. Okay. It seems to me, therefore, that far from being a fallacy, this sort of circular argument is necessary for anyone who seeks to argue on behalf of a broad worldview, particularly one which includes distinctive criteria of rationality and truth. Interestingly enough, even secularists like Thomas Kuhn, who became known for his book on the different paradigm, paradigms in, in scientific thinking, and then also coined that word paradigm shift, and one paradigm of scientific thinking was exchanged for a different paradigm. But he acknowledges in this book, which came out in the early 60s, I believe, the circularity in this sense of scientific arguments. So it's not just the Christians who have to reason in that kind of way. Everyone does it. And the secularists do at least some of them do acknowledge the fact that they do. Persuasion, which is number four, and my final point for this part of our presentation here. Persuasion. 
But how, one may well ask, can such a circular argument be persuasive to people who are outside of the circle? This is a very critical issue here, which I am addressing. So if I am not a secular humanist, how can a secular humanist convince me of the truth of his argument? If I'm absolutely outside of his circle of thinking, outside of his rational, secular rational paradigm, if I may use that word. Vice versa, how can I convince a secular humanist that my worldview is true if he does not enter into my circle? Well, this creates indeed a huge problem. And we could almost say a insurmountable problem. I use that qualifying word almost. But it is still a huge problem. Ultimately, it's a possibility to persuade anyone to enter the Christian circle. I am not equipped, not able, regardless of how smart I am, how educated I am, how experienced I am, to convince anyone of the truth of the Christian faith based on my arguments, as well as I can present them as true as they are. Someone who is outside my circle will not enter it if he refuses to enter. And thus he will be able to, to reject anything I say out of hand. So more needs to be done and said, already done, and more needs to happen than just mere arguments. When needs to be taken into account a supernatural drawing done by God, through his spirit, through his word, a drawing into the circle of Christianity. Uh, I just need to remind you of John chapter 6, just a few verses, 42 and 44, different other verses, which clearly tell us that the one who is drawing is God himself, and if he doesn't draw, no one will come. So, in a sense, this puts me into an awkward situation because no matter what I do, I will not succeed on my own. But in another sense, it puts me in the best position ever I can be in because it takes the big burden off me that I am responsible to convince the other that Christianity is true. I don't have that responsibility. I have a responsibility to present a clear case for the truth of, of a word. I have, to, I have a responsibility to testify of a marvelous grace of God which I experienced in my life when I trusted Christ and he forgave my sins and changed my life. I have that responsibility. I don't have a responsibility and I will not assume it to convert anyone. That's not my task. I will leave that to the one who can actually do it. And that one is almighty. 
And that one is the living God himself. Okay. So, but there is still a problem. Apologetics, how, no matter how well you can do it, will not do the trick. It will be important as one kind of way how we can witness. And as I said, we are charged to engage in a defense of the faith whenever God brings um, people into our lives who are seeking and wanting to know about, about the Christian faith and also who do attack the Christian faith based on their ulterior motives. But persuading anyone is beyond my ability. We must remember, first of all, that this problem is not unique to Christianity. It is a problem for anyone who argues for some system of ideas which includes distinctive epistemic criteria. Indeed, it is a problem which appears in human life more often than we might suppose. How often has each of us tried to argue with someone who seems to be on an entirely different wavelength from ourselves? Someone who doesn't seem to respond to normal reasoning, but whose thoughts follow a strange order which we cannot comprehend. Now, you would not necessarily think that this happens between a professor and his students. I can tell you, out of personal experience, that no matter how much I try to end the wavelengths of my students, they are still somewhere else when, <laughs> where my wavelengths <laughs> float along. <laughs> and it's sometimes quite difficult, if not impossible, that these wavelengths meet. Now, thankfully, I'm on the side of a professor. And so I don't need to necessarily adjust my wavelengths to the wavelengths of the students. Rather, the wavelengths of the students have to adjust to my wavelengths. And if I don't do it, they will have to experience some negative consequences. Sorry to say. But... Sometimes I enjoy it, sometimes I don't. <laughs> I don't want to give bad grades, but I have to give bad grades sometimes. When I tell the students, as long as you float in, in a different galaxy, you better straighten out, straighten out, because you need to. Example, yesterday I teach my students here in the States via the internet. So yesterday I was sitting in, in my room at the St. John's and one student said, well, yes, I know your wavelength tells me I should limit my term paper to 10 pages, but my own wavelengths tell me I need to write at least 14 pages. My answer, get real, 10 pages. Limit your paper to 10 pages. Okay, that was my first answer. The second answer was, my own wavelengths tell me now that you can write 12 pages. So adjust your 
wavelengths to 12 pages. I think that's, that's a fair compromise, isn't it? So I expect 12. If he writes 13, he will be in big trouble. <laughs> big trouble. <laughs> okay. Anyway. To take an extreme case, imagine a student who blindly, uh, so blindly paranoid that he thinks all his professors are out to kill him. He resides, excuse me, he resists evidence to the contrary, twisting it so that it reinforces his presupposition. You, you remind him of Professor A who treated the student kindly. The student replies, Professor A was only trying to gain my confidence so that it would be easier for him to murder me. In fact, why would Professor A have been so kind if he didn't have such a nefarious motive. Professor A's kindness proves his murderous intent. Imagine that the student consistently employs such reasoning. Obviously, the student has an er erroneous worldview which has deeply affected his powers of reason. His very criteria of truth and rationality are distorted. He will not believe anything that disagrees with his presupposition that the professor is out to kill him. Thus, his reasoning is circular. In the sense defined earlier, he has a distinctive concept of rationality by which he tests all arguments, all evidence. Since most of us do not accept this system, we are outside of his circle and he is outside of ours. How then do we communicate? What kind of argument can be brought against him? Well, what do we normally do in such situations? Surely we do not accept his system. His criterion of truth and argue on the basis of that. We don't accept it. To do so would simply reinforce his conclusion and his conclusion is false. Nor do we try to find some neutral ground, some criterion which is favorable neither to his presupposition nor to ours. For there is no such neutral ground. No such neutral ground. One must either presuppose that all professors are trying to kill the student, or one must reject that presupposition. Either or. Yes. Yes, the moment you give in to that argument that there is a common ground between your opponent and yourself in the argument, mm -hmm. you have lost. You have no chance of winning the argument. You have already lost if you give in to that. And this is what he tries to push you into. Because the moment you give in, he has won. He knows that. 
At least most of them know it. Some know it intuitively. I want to press your intimate position. And yes, some are very successful in doing so. And if the moment we give in, we have lost. We have to keep this in mind. So never ever give in. It's a great temptation. We have because it's a temptation because when we think, well, the argument can go on on a more harmonious, peaceful level, and not on a sharp, antithetic level, which it should be. I, I don't like a fight. Who wants? To, who wants to have that? Or Pastor Charles, um, Pastor Bob said yesterday, who wants to go to a seminary where he has always fight the professor and what he is being taught, and we check that, and who wants that? That's that's no fun. So why not agree with a professor on some level, even though you reject what he tells you overall? This is much easier to do, but the moment you do it, you give up your high ground. You have actually lost your position, be it true or not. He has pulled you over. You are in his camp. You're not on neutral ground. You are, since there is no neutral ground, by presupposing there is, he has pulled you over into his camp, on his side. Don't do it. It doesn't work the other way. It doesn't work when they come over on here as far as Because they know exactly. Yeah. I know. If, if I would employ the same, well, I'm employing it only because I stand on his side already. This is not an argument I can use. Because I categorically reject the possibility of common ground. Because I cannot use it. He does, because he knows the moment I give in to that fallacy, I have given up my position of absolute truth. He has no problems with that because he's on the side of relativity. But we will we will enter that into greater detail later on. So just be a bit patient, and we will come back to that if we do have time. And I, I presume we do have enough time to at least tackle that problem. Okay, so we do not try to find neutral ground with that paranoid student because there is no neutral ground. One must either presuppose that all professors are trying to kill the student or one must reject that presupposition. What we do and what we should do is simply to argue on the basis of our own standard of truth. How can that be persuasive to the paranoid? Well, perhaps it won't be. But we argue in the hope that at some level of his conscience, he is still in touch with reality. And we hope, indeed pray, that if we press that reality upon him sharply enough, that reality might penetrate his system rebuking his distortions, redirecting his perverted mind. That hope may be slender, but it is the only hope we have. 
And sometimes that hope is rewarded. For indeed, paranoids do sometimes emerge from their paranoia. Sometimes they are persuaded. In such cases, the argument is circular, but pervasive nonetheless. Okay, once again, I trust in something beyond what I can accomplish. But I will not give up my firm ground from which I argue my case. In the final analysis, this is what we do and should do in any argument with someone who differs with us on fundamental standards. We do not, we cannot reason on his basis or on neutral criteria. Rather, we reason on our basis in hope. And sometimes the argument persuades despite the other's resistance to our standards. Now, these principles apply very well to Christian apologetics. The Christian apologist, too, must avoid adopting the systems of his opponents or the pretense of standing on neutral ground. He loves Jesus Christ, and therefore he cannot escape being biased. How can I be on neutral ground if I claim to be a follower of Jesus? Jesus said, he who is with me cannot be against me. How can I be on neutral ground? It is impossible. I am biased. And if someone tells me I'm biased, I readily concur. He has exactly understood where I stand. Now again, I turn the table. You are biased just as well. You're just biased against what I am biased for, but you're st still biased. Okay? Now, don't take this wrong, but I think it's a, still a good illustration. I'm not making a political statement, okay? Not at all. It's just illustration. But, and again, I dearly, dearly love my in-laws. There's no shadow of a doubt that I do love and I also respect them but we were sitting in the living room watching the news and when they said well CNN is so biased we don't like to watch it we turn over to Fox News well implied Fox News is not biased, CNN is biased. <laughs> understand what I mean? I think you understand. And again, it's not a political statement, it's not a statement about one channel or the other. My, I don't say one preface or the other, in regards to myself. I'm just trying to make it a point, okay? How are we are doing in time? Well, we're coming up on 11.30. Um, if you want to go further, you can go... Um, Car um, Carlton, what do you think? If he wants to go further. I'm playing the end at 11.40, so about 10 minutes. Okay.
Yes, sir. Very good, yes. Yes. Many people have made their decisions based upon false information. Correct. And so I just say, I challenge them to investigate it, and I try to help them by giving them the key points to look at what does what does the Bible say about those points. Yes. And can you agree or disagree? Because yes. otherwise it ends up being an argument. Correct, yes. And even when we do find ourselves in an argument, I yes. think the way that we handle ourselves. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. I fully agree with what you just said. And I will even enhance your arguments by a Bible verse. <laughs> I think that's just appropriate, isn't it? If the Bible says it, and I agree with what you said because the Bible says it. There is a Latin phrase, suavito in moto, fortito in re. Do you know what this means? Be mild in the way you present your argument. Be strong in the, sache, in, in the, in, in the substance, on the issues. But be mild, soft in the way you present your argument. 1 Peter 3, <clears throat> I'll quote with verse to you, okay, verse 16. I quoted to you verse 15. Let's just take this verse again. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Verse 16. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Isn't that exactly what you try to summarize and get across? Must I fully concur with your opinion? Do it with gentleness and respect. Don't show your arrogance because you know the truth. And the other one is the dummy. He just doesn't know it yet. Don't be so arrogant because this will show in the kind you try to argue your case. Respect that other person because think about yourself too. Where have you been in the past? You, should, you stood on his side. You were just as dumb and fooled and deceived and sinful and evil just as he was. And it's by the grace of God that we are that we are on the other side now. What do you have that you haven't already been given? Yes. That's where we are. So remind 
yourself of where you have been and what God's grace has really accomplished in your life. This will make you gentle and respectful and loving and patient and enduring, long-suffering. These are all fruits of the Spirit that we need to exhibit in love. And it's not very difficult, and, it's yet, and yet it's still very difficult for us, isn't it? We can, yeah. Don't we have to draw a strong distinction, too, though, between our spirit and attitude and um, the temptation to affirm the uh, unbeliever in any of his... Um, wrong thinking. Wrong thinking. Correct, yes. Now, this is going on neutral ground, or even stepping over the line. Now, I'm not confirming the wrong thinking, but I still try to make my point as gently as I possibly can. And I'm not putting him down. But I'm firm for for Tito in Ray. I'm firm in what I'm convinced of to be the truth. Fall and redemption. Now we left that first point behind us now, which was the point of creation. And you see how much hinges on creation. The other side knows very well how important it is to uphold evolution. Because by upholding evolution, they negate everything I said up till now. Let's go on to fall and redemption. Sin, grace, and knowledge. The Bible teaches that we are not only God's creatures, but also sinners. Romans 3, verse 23. Sin distorts all areas of human life. Therefore, it affects our knowledge of God in important ways. We have already discussed the contrast between living by God's word and living by mere human wisdom. Scripture teaches that many, sadly, take the latter choice because of sin within them. Paul in Romans 1 teaches that God has clearly revealed himself to all persons by means of the created world. This revelation includes God's divine nature, verse 12, excuse me, verse 20, we are in the first chapter of Romans, verse 20, his wrath against sin, verse 18, his moral requirements, verse 32. That clear revelation leaves everyone without excuse for their sin, verse 20. Indeed, because of that revelation, even those without the scriptures can be said to know, and I put this in quotation marks, to know God, verse 21. But these sinful people did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. Verse 28. They suppress the truth by their wickedness. Verse 18. They exchange the glory of God for that of idols. Verse 23. His truth for a lie. Verse 25. Their hearts are darkened. Verse 21. The result of this is moral degradation, the worst form of sinful behavior, verses 24, uh, 24 
32. This is the condition of all human beings apart from God's grace. Sin affects their thinking as well as the rest of their behavior. The point is not just that they reject the gospel. They reject the, the very idea of bowing before a revelation of God. They reject the very standards of truth by which the gospel is validated. Their minds are darkened. And once again, I could just quote one verse after another, which points us to that very fact that their minds are darkened. And I tried to illustrate that in the lecture at the university. And those who have heard it probably can recall what I told you in that lecture. All human philosophy is the product, if it's not Christian philosophy, it's the, it's the product of a darkened mind. And perhaps you know that wonderful textbook on the history of philosophy written by Gordon Clark, formerly a professor at Wheaton College, at Butler University and at other places, a Christian um, professor, philosopher, who wrote that textbook on the history of philosophy called from Thales to Dewey. Thales was one of the first Greek philosophers and John Dewey, the American pragmatist, from Thales to Dewey. And it's a wonderful textbook evaluating human philosophies from a Christian perspective. And at the very last page, in his very last statement, he says, and I paraphrase, I cannot quote him verbatim, but I paraphrase what he says. Now we have looked at all the human philosophies, at least the main ones, the important ones. We've studied them in detail. We realize that all the different philosophies contradict themselves at some point. There's no absolute truth. If someone who gives in to these world views, gives in to that worldly wisdom exhibited in these philosophies, and if he is absolute consistent, there's only one reaction which is left, one response. He goes in his shed, gets a rope, and hangs himself. And this is the last statement. <laughs> in a textbook on the history of philosophy. <laughs> There's no hope. There's absolutely no hope. The product of a dark mind is absolute hopelessness and confusion, absurdity. And if you are consistent, since you cannot live on such a basis, if you are consistent, you have to kill yourself. It's true. Okay, let's make a break here. I let you go with that thought, going in my shed. <laughs> and don't be consistent. <laughs> okay. Um.